Let us pray. We pray that you will give us ears to listen, minds to understand, and hearts to love. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our relationship with God is one based in a covenant that goes all the way back to Abram, as we're reminded in today's scriptures from both Genesis and Romans. A covenant gives structure and stability to a relationship, whether it's between a property owner and a tenant, or between two people committing to each other in a marriage or in our own relationship with God. In Genesis chapter 17, we hear the basic conditions of the covenant God declares as the basis for his ongoing relationship with Abram and the people of Israel. I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you and will make you exceedingly numerous. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You shall be the ancestor of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the ancestor of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations of you and kings shall come from you. After hearing God explain the terms of their covenant, Abram responded as many of us would be likely to respond with disbelief. Here's what we learn in the next verse, Genesis 17, 17, which is just after the lectionary reading for today. And Genesis 17, 17 is where we really begin to hear the rest of the story. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, can a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Can Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Rather than believing that God would make them exceedingly fruitful and make nations of them, instead, Abraham's wheels began turning, trying to figure out how he could make this happen by taking his then 13-year-old son, Ishmael, whose mother was Hagar, and all of his male servants and going and getting them circumcised because he was so caught up in the idea that he, Abraham, had to work to make all of this happen that he had to come up with some human scheme to be exceedingly fruitful. The Apostle Paul, when he wrote of Abraham in his letter to the Romans, emphasized that eventually Abraham did learn to trust that God would make things happen, just, had, just as God had promised. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God being fully con convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Therefore, his faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. And now the words it was reckoned to him were written not for his sake alone, but for ours also. Unfortunately, we humans tend to make things more complicated from, for ourselves than they really need to be. God already had a plan for how Abraham and Sarah would be fruitful and would become the parents of descendants more numerous than the stars or the grains of sand. As Paul explained to the Romans, for the promise that he would inherit the world did not come to Abraham or his descendants through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. It is the adherents of the law, if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, 
Faith is null, and the promise is void. For this reason, it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his descendants, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to those who share the faith of Abraham. We, along with Abraham, forget that our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. We forget that God will not let our foot be moved, that he watches over us while we sleep, that he will preserve us and keep us safe. We forget that God, as the psalmist says, is watching over our going out and our coming in. We live as if we have to watch out for ourselves. And we live as if we have to save ourselves by doing as much as we can, day in and day out, to preserve ourselves and to be exceedingly fruitful. We live as if we have to make ourselves great, as if it depends on us to make a great name for ourselves, as if that is all that really matters. But when we do this, we are forgetting the terms of the covenant the structure of our relationship with God who says that he will bless us so that we in turn will be a blessing. We get so caught up in working hard for ourselves to make our own name great that we forget that our worthiness is not due to our own efforts but that it is in fact a gift from God, a gift that is freely given and one that cannot be earned in any way. So last year, before the pandemic turned the world upside down, I read what was then a newly released book titled Seculosity, whose premise intrigued me. In fact, I was going to lead a Lent study on it, and then at that time we kind of gave up trying to figure out how to do those things online for the time being. But the premise of this book is that people in our contemporary U.S. culture though they are worshiping in church much less, are in fact just as religious as ever, but they're religious about different things. And they're not necessarily religious things, but secular things, which is where the title comes from, religiosity about secular things equals seculosity. Instead of practicing faith by being a part of a church community, many people are putting their faith in other things. And there's a chapter in this book about each one of these things, putting their faith in healthy eating or exercise or devotion to a political candidate or party or to being super attentive parents or partners or just to being frenetically busy, successful people. In other words, people are running around trying to figure out how we can be fruitful, fruitful exceedingly fruitful, optimally productive people whether it's in our work life, our health regime, our family time, and so on. And we can get so focused on doing all these things and doing them well that we may forget why we felt called to do them to begin with. The author argues that chief among the things people get drawn into worshiping instead of God is just being busy. And he calls this the seculosity of busyness. Now his point is not new, but rather a new version of an old idea. Along the lines, if you ever studied this in college or grad school, along the ideas of the lines of Max Weber's thesis, 
of the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism. Another term for this devotion to being busy is performancism, which is the assumption, usually unspoken, that there is no distinction between what we do and who we are. What makes you lovable in this mindset, indeed what makes your life worth living, is your performance at X, Y, or Z. Performancism holds that if you are not doing enough or doing enough well, then you are not enough. And so in this book, there are several very compelling examples of what this feeling of performancism, our sense of self-worth that comes from being busy and getting stuff done looks like. One example comes from a scholar named Anne Burnett who has collected and studied family Christmas letters and how they've changed over the last 50 years. And one of the letters in Burnett's study is especially poignant. And these are the actual words from one person's Christmas letter. I'm not sure whether writing a Christmas letter when I'm working at the speed of light is a good idea, but given the amount of time I have to devote to any single project, it's the only choice I have. We start every day at 4.45 a.m., launch ourselves through the day at breakneck speed, only to land in a crumpled heap at 8.30 p.m., wondering how we made it through the day. But this worshiping at the anxious altar of enough is not the life that God has in mind for us. The author of Seculosity goes on to share the story of someone named Mary Carr, who at age 14, when her parents were away from home one day, attempted to overdose. And her parents returned home to find her very sick and assumed that she was vomiting due to food poisoning. Mary's father asked if there was any food she could even think of eating, and she said she might be able to stomach a plum. But where they lived in Texas, plums weren't in season just then. So Mary's dad drove all the way over the line into Arkansas to bring home to his beloved daughter a whole bushel full of plums. And that moment of grace, a father's gift to his daughter at her moment of deepest need was a turning point in Mary's life. And as she recalls the story in her memoir, but it's when you sink your teeth into the plum that you make a promise. The skin is still warm from riding in the sun in daddy's truck and the nectar runs down your chin and you snap out of it or are snapped out of it. Never again will you lay a hand against yourself, not so long as there are plums to eat and somebody, anybody who gives enough of a damn to haul them to you. That's how you acquire the resolution for survival that in the coming years you are going to, are going to demand of you. You don't earn it, it's given. Likewise, Abram didn't do anything to deserve being called by God into a new promised land or to become the father of descendants as numerous as the stars. And Paul didn't do anything to deserve having his life miraculously transformed one day on the road to Damascus. These two are moments of grace like Mary Carr's bushel of plums. And these moments of grace weren't earned. 
They were freely given by a God who wants to be in relationship with each one of us, his dearly loved children. And so we have to keep reminding ourselves that our righteousness or our worthiness is not from works, it's not from things that we do ourselves. Rather, our worthiness comes to us by faith, faith in a God of grace and a God of love. And as we heard in our gospel today from Mark 8, Jesus rebuked Peter for being too focused on feeling comfortable in the now rather than on taking comfort in the bigger picture of God's plans. As Jesus told Peter, get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. We might consider telling ourselves this very thing when we find ourselves being sucked too much to focus on human things and what we can do for ourselves and not focus enough on what God has already done and is doing and will continue to do for us. Jesus loved to use paradox to make it clear to his disciples back then and to us still today what really matters. And here's what he said to Peter and his friends and the whole crowd right after he told Peter to get behind me, Satan. Jesus said to them, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? So in closing, I'd like us to take a moment to meditate on three very short sentences, just nine words in all, that I propose we take up as a prayer as we continue on in what has become a year-long season of Lent, but journeying on toward the hope and joy of Easter. And these nine words are from one of my favorite authors, Kate Bowler, who writes this. God is here. We are loved. It is enough. Let that wash over you in all its truth and simplicity. God is here. We are loved. It is enough. Amen.